Today I'm speaking with Mr. Kerry Natchenberg. Kerry is a computer wizard, first of all. Uh, he has decades of experience in computer security. He's worked with companies like Norton and Symantec. Uh, he is working on autonomous vehicles with Lyft Level 5. And of course, he's a UCLA professor as well. This conversation was highly requested by all you guys on Reddit, and rightly so. Uh, Natchenberg's a pretty cool dude. We talked about artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, cyber warfare, how to make the most out of the UCLA experience as an undergrad, and much, much more. So if any of that sounds cool to you, then tune in and enjoy. Also, if you want to recommend any future guests, like your favorite UCLA professors or some Bruin who you think really embodies that Bruin genius energy, then follow me on Instagram at ElderLama with two A's. Shout out to Coolstar07 and Snoothies from the UCLA subreddit for recommending Natchenberg. Here we go. You're listening to the Elder Llama podcast, the show that inspires curious minds to ponder the secrets of the universe. My name is Eric Amezqua. I'm a UCLA undergrad STEM major, and in this podcast, I combine my knowledge of astrophysics, evolutionary biology, and the nature of the human mind to make cohesive observations about the world. Okay, now we're live. I'm here with Carrie Natchenberg. Hello there, Carrie. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. Good morning. Well, once again, thank you for coming on the show. I know you're probably quite busy with the end of the quarter, uh, but I'm excited to pick your brain for this next hour or so. Uh, I'm looking forward to exploring your mind a little bit regarding, of course, your career, but also like a more personal side. Maybe we can get into uh, identifying you and I some insights for undergrad on how to make the most out of the university experience. Um, but we'll get on, we'll get into all of that in the next 45 minutes, hour or so. Uh, but you have a book, sure. right? You have a novel. Oh, oh, you're warming my heart. Of course, called I have a book. The Florentine Deception, right? Tell us about it. That's correct. Correct. Oh, The Florentine Deception is a thriller. Uh, first and foremost, it's sort of a, like an adventure that I always wanted to read when I was a kid or you know, younger, but uh, has a little bit of a technical angle to it. And I, we can talk about that later if you really want. But um, it's mostly really a thriller um, about this guy, Alex Fife, who just sold his startup for millions, but he's lost. He just doesn't know what to do with his life. He's a little bit sort of, you know, like a lot of people um, bored. And uh, he finds this adventure and dives into it and ends up being a geopolitical thriller where he gets tied up into all kinds of bad things, but ends up surviving, probably. I don't know, you have to read it. And by the way, there's a, I, just so people know, um, there's a, a charity effort behind this. So all of the money that I would receive from the publisher for the book is going to charities helping underserved students and veterans. So, right. yeah. Awesome. Well, I think the techno thriller genre, it needed a book that was actually like, you know, accurate technologically. I didn't have these like bizarre and bizarre names for outlandish technologies. Uh, what was your inspiration for, for writing that? Yeah. So, so actually you bring up an interesting point. So the book is actually techno realistic. So if you read it, anything in the book could actually happen. It's not, you know, impossible. And there's no crazy buzzwords and so on. And that's important for some people. Many people don't really care because they're not really that technical, but for the, those that are, they would find it realistic. Um, 
uh, how, how was I inspired? I, when I graduated, I couldn't stand reading because I just hated reading in high school and college. All the books were boring and slow and, you know, and fall asleep. Um, and maybe five years after college, I just started reading again, very slowly thrillers. And, and because I thought, you know, there's gotta be something fun, you know, in a book, <laughs> I remember, you know, reading as a kid from time to time and enjoying it. And I didn't like any of the books that I read. They're all horrible. So eventually I said, you know, I think I can do better than this. And I sat down one night with a glass of red wine and I just started writing and I didn't plan everything out extensively. I just started writing. So it was fun. And then caught on. I wrote a couple pages, a couple more. And before you knew it, I had a hundred pages and I had to finish. So that was then seven years later, <laughs> eight years later it was done. That's really awesome. Yeah. There's some beauty that happens when you merge two disciplines. Like you, you have quite, you know, the extensive knowledge about the computer science industry. And then mm-hmm. to bring that into a book, it's, it's, I think it's pretty unique. Uh, you, you know, I, I, it, it's nice you say that. I think I did that as a crutch because I thought that I wouldn't be a good writer unless I had a technical angle. And I think if I were to write another book, which I'm thinking about doing, I might not focus on the technical angle so much and try to really just be a writer uh, and, and not use this as a crutch. If that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, what are you considering? I, well, I'm thinking about science fiction. I'm thinking about a, a kid's adventure. I'm thinking about all kinds of things. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm, think, I'm thinking about a number of books that where there's not necessarily any technology at all. Uh, that would be like what we, you know, use or know about today. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I've heard great things about your book. So I, I, I know people will line up for, for the next one. Um, so like I said, before we, we started recording, you're quite popular among the, the re- online UCLA Reddit community. Um, I posted like I was going to interview you and well, people were really passionate about me having you on. So I'll just tell you that, that you're, you're popular there. But for people listening who don't know who you are, uh, how about you summarize what it is that you do professionally at the moment? Sure. So um, I am 49 years old. I worked the first part of my career, the first 25 years in the cybersecurity industry, first for Norton and Symantec, working on Norton antivirus and other security products for them. And then for Google. Uh, and a company called Chronicle, which is a Google spin out. We actually were like a Waymo or a Verily of Google. We were spun out to doing cybersecurity um, for Google. And then that was reacquired by Google. So I've been sort of semantic, Google, Chronicle, Google. Um, and then after, after that, I said I wanted to switch careers and try something new, um, solve a really hard problem. And I switched into the autonomous vehicle uh, space. So I worked for Lyft Level 5 which will soon be part of Woven Planet. We were just acquired by a subsidiary of Toyota. So it will be part of the Toyota family, I guess you would say. And then, as you mentioned, part-time, I teach at UCLA. uh, And I'm an adjunct professor, adjunct associate professor here at UCLA. um, And I teach just one quarter year. So I'm not actually teaching this quarter. I taught last uh, in winter. And every winter I teach just one class. And that's my, and volunteering, basically. Uh, Yeah, so that's professionally sort of what I do, yeah. That's awesome. So I imagine your take on teaching is a little different, right? If you're only there for a quarter, it seems like you really like what you're doing. And based on, you know, the the opinions I've heard of people, like people really like you. So, you know, you're, you're leaving a positive impact. Uh, what's your, why do you like teaching? You know, I like teaching um, for a bunch of reasons. 
uh, first of all, it's really fun. I'm a ham. I like, I, I think I like attention, right? And in fact, I know I like attention. And so when I can go and get up there and be silly and teach people things and see reactions, um, that, that gives me a lot of joy. It's fun. Um, I love explaining things to people in clear ways, like super important for me to be very clear and crisp for people so that they can understand something in their own way. Um, because I was pretty slow growing up. I was not a bright kid. And so for me, it was very difficult to learn new concepts. And so there's some part of me that's deep from childhood. That's like, how can I explain this in such a way that anybody can get it so that the young me would not have troubles understanding something that I would have you know, had troubles with in the past. Um, so I like seeing people, their eyes light up and get it, um, get good ideas. Um, uh, I like the material I teach also. It's super interesting material. And we start our class. You're not a computer science major, right? No. Or, okay, yeah. So we start our class and people learn, have learned in the previous quarter, the very basics of computer science and programming. Like literally what you, you know, the equivalent of being able to write Sam I am in simple sentences with punctuation and, you know, like first grade or something. And by the end of the quarter, they're building programs like turn by turn navigation, where you can literally go and like do Google Maps style navigation directions um, in one quarter. So it's super interesting material and, um, and people find it very useful because they realize, oh, wow, I now can do really interesting things. Um, so it's fun material. Um, there's a way to help other people. And, and I really like helping people making their lives a little bit easier because life is difficult for everybody. So that yeah. a lot of little things. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's something beautiful about teaching and, and giving people that moment of insight in which mm -hmm. you you transmit information to them and like they they just know meaning in that moment and that, that's just a beautiful thing of you know that's yeah, great humanity we're able to do that why did you choose computer science as your your career oh um so when i was young as i said i was not the brightest kid um and i didn't really have any hobbies didn't read particularly much I read one book, which I really liked was Watership Down. If anybody hasn't read that, it's about rabbits. I read that was like the one book I enjoyed reading in childhood. And I read it under the covers with a flashlight. It was so good. Yeah, after I was told to go to bed. But I didn't read that much as a kid. I wasn't really a bright kid. I didn't have any intellectual activities or things that I did. And then on my 11th birthday or right around there, my father got me a computer, a TI-994A, which um, compared to my phone here, so this has, I think, 128 gigs of RAM. Um, my little portable drive here has two terabytes of, uh, you know, a solid state memory. That computer had 16 kilobytes. <laughs> so it was like, it really could do very, very little. It had basic in it. And you hook it up to a TV and a tape recorder. And that was it. And I had a manual. And um, my, you know, I went to my room and I started playing with it. And nobody told me that I had to do it at a certain speed or I had to complete it by a certain time or that I had to do it particularly well. And so I stumbled through it. I took months and months and months to learn probably what an intelligent kid could learn in a couple of days, but nobody told me I was stupid. And it was the first time in my life I was able to do something and learn something where I didn't feel like I'm slow or stupid or, you know, you know. Um, and so I just started programming. And I spent all day programming on weekends. I would spend evenings programming. And by the time I got to college, you know, there was nothing else I could do. That was the one thing I was good at. So that's what I did. 
it's incredible how far we've come since then, you know, like, and what that's only been. Oh, yeah. Years, right? Uh, you're insulting me. Let's see. So that was when I was 11. You told me you're eight. Was, yeah, it was uh, not 40 years. It was 38, 39 years ago. And it's very, it's an important distinction because one year right now will be 50 next year. And that's a bad, that's a, not a good year. You know, 50 is old. So we have to be very, very crisp about the. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Ages. <laughs> so what's right. exciting for you right now in the CS industry? You're, you're really of course, pretty deep in it. You know a lot about it. Yeah. And, and I imagine you can predict, not maybe not predict, but you have some insight into like what future technology might look like. So what's kind of something that excites you? You know, I think the thing that excites me most is how machine learning is finally working its way into healthcare. Um, and I think that over the next, oh, I don't know, 30 years because it takes a long time. It's the regulated industry and there's, you know, for good reason and so on. There's, um, you know, machine learning and software engineering is going to dramatically transform the way that people do healthcare, lower the cost curve, improve outcomes, um, make healthcare more available to many more people who couldn't afford it otherwise, including in probably other countries. Um, uh, And machine learning can solve many of the problems uh, that even a great doctor uh, might have trouble with today. Um, so uh, it's a matter of time and getting the right data to the right people to analyze it in a private, you know, privacy conscious way. But um, when you're my age, I think healthcare will be drastically different. Um, and that will make life better for a lot of people. Yeah, that's probably the most exciting thing. Um, related to that, I'll give you another example. There's a company called Grail. Um, and Grail is a company that basically does sequencing. They take a blood sample, they sequence the um, the proteins, and maybe other things. They I don't know other you know chemical constituents they find in your blood, and they can detect. I think it's like some fifty different types of cancer, in just from one blood sample, early to the point where, for instance, if you did this every year, you could detect cancers before they spread, before they're even that's stage two cancer when they're a stage one or whatever, and they can be easily killed and removed uh, using again, software and machine learning and so on technologies. So imagine if nobody got those 50 cancers, at least bad versions of them anymore, because you know, from a yearly checkup, you could basically detect them and, and then cure them before they became bad. So that's the kind of preventative thing that's super exciting to me. Yeah, yeah that's, that's incredible. It seems like that is a chance to move into more of like a predictive healthcare rather than yeah. what it is right yeah. now. Which it's kind of like a reactive healthcare. Like you get sick, you go to the doctor. Right. But, and I think in concert with tech technological advancements in genetics, that might be like a beautiful technology. Like right now in yeah. genetics, um, you know, our knowledge is still pretty limited, like in terms of having the genome sequence of somebody and being able to identify like, their predispositions for diseases because mm-hmm. uh, it's very difficult, right? Diseases are very like multi, um, multi-gene issues and it's very mm-hmm. complex, but I can totally see how machine learning might help even with that. Like you, we oh, can yeah. sequence people and then these machines can compare their genomes across like a bunch of databases yeah. and, and see what they might yeah. have in the future. Absolutely, it's not just detection. Right there, like I think it was BioNTech, the company that helped uh, make the or made the Pfizer vaccine. Um, I think they're actually trying to build antibody-based treatments 
for uh, cancers. That's what they've been working on, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're actually, or one company that I heard about or read about is actually generating antibodies, you know, using computing technology. They're actually creating, you know, technology or creating custom drugs, if you will, biologics based on your unique cancer using computer systems and so on. So there's, it's not just about detecting, it's about, you know, creating new drugs and, you know, and so on. It's really amazing. Yeah. Right. It seems kind of like an extension of our brain in a way, like these, these technologies, you know, like we've gotten to this point where our computers are getting really complex and sophisticated and the work we're able to do with them, it just gets so incredible and it improves at a rapid pace. Like it's kind of the equivalent of when man created the steam engine, for instance, like that, that caused a uh, very rapid change in technology. Uh, you know, the industrial revolution in the matter of a hundred years, we progressed in what would take like, you know, millions of years in the past. And I think we're at a similar point today, right? Like the computer came about in the 1980s. And now it's at a point where we've invented this technology that reaps more sophisticated technology. And it's just kind of like exponential from here. It's a flywheel. You put more energy in, spins faster, you know, just keeps, it'll just keep, you know, it spins out value that goes back in, but it spins faster and faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's beautiful. And I think some people are like, you know, they talk about this, this machine learning and maybe what's like a, a, a misconstrued way. Uh, but I think a lot of like the, the lay person or, or uh, the public consciousness thinks of machine learning as like, this sentient artificial intelligence and maybe is that mistaken? Like, or, or is that a possibility that th- these machines can actually become self-aware? Are you talking about now or in a hundred years? A <laughs> hundred years. Oh, a hundred years. I think there's very, a very good chance that we'll have sentient computers in a hundred years. Yeah. I would guess in a hundred years. Yeah, if you just keep on sort of looking at the curve of computing hardware, um, you know, new advances that we might not even think about right now, um, I think you, you will end up with some general purpose AI within a hundred years, maybe sooner. Yeah, not now. Now these things are stupid. They're very effective, but they, they're effective at one thing. They have no consciousness or anything, right? They don't have any awareness or, yeah. Right, it's not like general intelligence. Does no, that, there's no general intelligence whatsoever. Yeah. So that's clearly exciting. I mean, there's tons of applications as we've discussed. Does any of that frighten you? Do you think there's something we need to like really think through? Does any of that frighten you? Do you think there's something we need to like really think through? Uh, it's so far away right now that it doesn't frighten me. Um, you know, that as, as we have plenty of issues with biases and data that we use for training of existing machine learning models that people can start addressing now. Um, that can cause all kinds of types of trouble, right? So, um, but worried about ge- worrying about general intelligence, that's not something I worry about personally. I know other people do. There's lots of consortia and so on to talk about that and come up with standards um, because they, people anticipate that. I guess I've recognized that there's this pattern of increasing complexity in the universe. Like nebulous gases, if we go way back, they condense to form stars, for instance. And life uh, appeared, right, in, in Earth's oceans. And... Uh, it starts off as really basic life. Like you have like prokaryotes and stuff. Um, 
you know, which is just pretty much molecules that self-propagate. But some time passes and the complexity increases. These become eukaryotes, these mm -hmm. single-celled organisms with organelles that can divide labor, for instance. And more time passes and eventually you get multicellular organisms that can navigate the world and act and like do work in a, in a manner that's never been seen. And more time passes, you get like social organisms, multiple organisms that are working as like a hive mind almost. And eventually you get the primates and, and man and reason, which is yet another giant leap for complexity in the universe. And then you, of course, we talked about the steam engine, another leap, like to where technology is just increasing more rapidly. And now we're at the point of like AI or maybe in a, a hundred years or so. Um, that is just like mind boggling to me. It, it, I think, you know, now intelligence, is not limited to a biological vessel. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Things, things evolve and they accelerate, yeah. I've heard uh, of the term cyber warfare. And, uh -huh. and I, you know, working in like the security computer science industry, uh, I wonder if you have any insight into that. What exactly is cyber warfare? Yeah, cyber warfare, um, I'm not going to give you a precise definition because I'm not an expert in cyber warfare, but you know, in a nutshell, it is uh, an entity, which could be a state entity. Uh, it could be a, a terrorist entity or you know, some small group that launches attacks against uh, a, you know, um, probably a nation state generally um, for the intention of stealing secrets, uh, uh, basically disrupting systems, the availability of, of systems or, or compromising data, basically changing or deleting data would be the sort of the three categories, confidentiality, availability of systems, like you can't connect to it, the availability and integrity. So changing data, which can be really you know, devastating. If you imagine if you were to change the formula of some drug, it could kill a lot of people, for instance. And cyber warfare is generally targeted again at nation states, um, as opposed to at individual companies where that would just be a hacking attack or cyber attack at a company. Mm, and how do you guys, how would we prepare for that? You know, it's, the problem is that our infrastructure, the world's infrastructure, computing infrastructure is basically built on computer systems that are, were designed without security in mind and then have been updated to try to bolt on security in the, in, you know, uh, in the intervening time, most of them. And so they're not that secure and it's very difficult to sort of prepare because effectively you're dealing with, it. it's almost like, you know, we have your home and my home and people can pick locks, right? Locks are a fundamental thing that are part of every home and every apartment. They can be picked. So you'd have to invent a quantum leap behind, beyond the lock to prevent people from picking, you know, or you can't really stop it. So all it takes is a determined attacker or attackers who basically know what to go for, and they're going to find flaws. So you can prepare by trying to update your systems, patch your systems, you know, get the latest versions of the software that have fewer vulnerabilities, uh, try to scan for attackers, but none of these things are perfect. And, you know, it's inevitable this attacker has to succeed once and the defender has to succeed 100% of the time to be successful. So the attacker basically almost always wins at some point. So I don't think you can prepare. You know, maybe in a distant future, people will design uh, operating systems that are widespread 
um, that are a little bit more like your iPhone, which is not perfect, by the way, but it's much better than what you would have in a typical PC, Mac, um, and uh, in my opinion. And um, you could improve security substantially, but like I think there's a great quote from Eugene Spafford, like the only, I forget, this is a paraphrase, the only safe computer is one that's turned off, unplugged, and buried in like three feet of concrete. And even then, I'm not so sure. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm glad there's, there's a lot of intelligent people thinking about that. We need a, a team of computer wizards to um, be considering all these possibilities and, and working, uh, working against those. Yeah, you know, there's plenty of people thinking about these things. The problem is that when you have a couple billion computers that use the old system and run hundreds of millions of different applications that people don't want to give up, including major businesses, how do you transition to a new platform that is more secure because you would give up all those things you had before? So part of this is less technological. They have many solutions for some of these problems, not perfect solutions, but better. But getting everybody to switch over is the hard part, not the technology. They're both are hard, but you know, it's also a sort of a platform thing, a human thing. So does that kind of make us like fundamentally vulnerable? Yeah. Yeah, it's like just embedded yeah. in, in, in it's these systems. inherent, embedded in the system, that's right. Mm, right. So we talked about like sentient AI, but of course there's also like more primitive artificial intelligence, like the, the machine learning in self-driving cars, for instance. Um, tell us about your work at Lyft with these self-driving vehicles? You know, I am working on areas of behavior planning, um, prediction, which is predicting where other entities will go uh, over time, like in the future. So you can basically figure out how the car should can, can navigate around them or slow down um, in the areas of evaluation and validation as well, which is like, how do you actually measure how effective uh, your current self-driving car stack is? Um, ideally in simulation, because boy, it's really expensive to put human drivers on the road and, you know, gas up the car and it takes a lot of time and a simulation can run a, you know, a thousand times faster and so on. So, um, I'm sort of the, looking into a bunch of different areas, um, in, in a leadership role at the company. Uh, and it's actually a great place to work because you get to so much exposure to everything. It's a smaller team. It's not a massive company like a Waymo, for instance, to, you know, it's a much smaller company. And so uh, people can get exposure to many different systems working there over a year or two. Mm. And when can we expect these, these autonomous vehicles hitting the road? When can I ride in a self-driving lift? Um, you know, you are a self-driving lift. If you, if you, you know, certain that hail uh, uh, vehicles, I think uh, maybe in Arizona with, I don't know if Waymo was part of that network, but certainly in uh, Vegas. Oops, my connection is unstable. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, so certainly in Vegas, you can hail, I think, an Aptiv vehicle with the Lyft network. When are you going to be able to generally hail a ride anywhere and go anywhere? Is that what you're asking? Or just in limited geos and so on or what? Yeah, let's do like like cities, like Los Angeles, for instance. It's kind of a more uh, developed area. So so when, when will I be able to hail a car anywhere in LA and go to anywhere else in LA? Sure. I would guess 10 to 15 years. Okay. Okay. I'll be there uh, to be one of your customers. 
Yeah, you'll be around. Uh-huh. Elon Musk says he can do it in two years. And I don't know the extent to which like he expects to do this. Like, I don't know if it's, you know, widespread or just in some areas. Mm-hmm. Do you think he can do it? Uh, Elon Musk is a visionary, a very impressive guy, but he said he could do it in two years, I think for the last six years or, or so. So I'm, I may be wrong on the number of years, but it's been a number, number of times he sort of said that. Um, you know, from information that I've seen online that's sort of leaked about how they solve, how solve the problem, uh, it's not clear that the technology they're using will get them to a fully autonomous vehicle that doesn't require any human. You could fall asleep, you know, can go anywhere. Um, I think that they're a long way from that. I think they have a really impressive system, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think they're anywhere near that. Mm. So you've been working with computers for a long time, right? And mm-hmm. I won't, this time I, I won't name how many years, but nice. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I imagine like you've gotten to the point where you can look at a, a screen of code and just like see meaning immediately, right? You, you, you've had so much experience with it that the way you interact with these virtual objects is quite different. Is, your, is that accurate? Is your, what's your experience been with that? You know, it all depends what I'm looking at. If I'm looking at some code that is in a language that I'm really familiar with, like C++, and it's, it's generally well-written, yeah, I can look at it and pretty quickly see what's going on, probably you know, much, much faster. Um, if it if it's, has domain-specific information in it, like, for instance, it's not just C++ code, but C++ code that's analyzing whether there's a collision between two vehicles doing polygon intersection and, you know, um, using, uh, you know, a particular uh, mathematical library that I have used then I'm going to sit down like anybody else and use, you know, Google to search, you know, and uh, Stack Overflow and stuff. Um, and if I go to a language I'm not familiar with, like Python, where I'm just starting to build more familiarity, you know, I'm, I'm generally very slow. So it just depends. It's like anything else. You, you have areas where you're strong and you're weak. Yeah. I've recently started thinking of computers as a kind of, portal into the, the virtual world, right? Like this is a mm-hmm. 2D screen. Uh, like you look, at, you look at a screen of computer code. It's a 2D screen. And if somebody who doesn't know computers looks at it, it just looks like text, right? But uh-huh. if you have knowledge of what that is, th- this text is like a, actually a portal into this virtual world. You see objects. And these are actually uh-huh. multidimensional objects that like they can store information on yeah axes in this in this virtual world and that's just so fascinating to me yeah no it's amazing you can construct all kinds of interesting virtual structures that you know represent really interesting things in interesting ways yeah mm-hmm. and visualize them in your head yeah it's super cool right yeah yeah they're not even in space time like you can't point to a particular coordinate in xyz right. time here right. they exist in this other really a dimension this other dimension that is the virtual uh i think mathematics is also a portal right like through mathematics we're able to access and manipulate these surfaces for instance that are like 13 dimensions 13 dimensional surfaces right that evade human intuition and like uh, yeah, yeah yeah our normal reason but through mathematics we're able to actually work with these these really complex uh, figures and concepts. And I think computer science is, is the same way. And it really fascinates me that, you know, before computers existed, this world of the virtual 
was inaccessible. And yet the potential for it existed clearly, right? I mean, outside of like the virtual objects that optics and like light makes, right? Um, but before computers, the world of the virtual was inaccessible. And it just makes me wonder what future technology lies ahead that will open up a similar portal into this completely other dimension. Like it's not even virtual. It's like some, some other thing that, that um, we can access. But kind of stepping back from, from um, way out there a little bit, uh, I want to ask you some questions that people from Reddit have submitted, right? People sure. who want to ask you stuff. So let me just get out my Reddit application. You can actually surf Reddit on a phone. It's usually like one inch wide. Oh, uh, there's an app now. Oh, there's an app. Okay, well, that's yeah. true. I never use the app. I don't, I don't use Reddit too often. I just got into it. Well, you can um, find anything on Reddit. It's pretty, quite amazing what you can find on Reddit. It's a little scary. Yeah, they call it the front page of the internet, right? For a reason. Yeah. Well, like I said, you're quite popular on Reddit. <laughs> you got you got the, the most upvotes on um when, when I asked like who should I interview Natchenber was like the the most upvotes by far. Well, I'm very grateful to my students. Yes. Okay, you ready? Uh, I I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you when I hear these questions. Uh, they're not bad. They're they're, they're okay. They're, well, they're you know bad questions to be up to. It might be entertaining. It's okay. All right. Cool Star Zero Seven. He's a CS major class of 2022 asks what made you want to be an adjunct professor and how did you manage it with only a master's when most positions require a PhD? Got it. Um, good question. So I had a colleague at Symantec back in 2000, I think, who was a lecturer at UCLA. Um, and we were having lunch one day in the courtyard and I said, you know, I like teaching. I actually had done some teaching before at a place called Learning Tree, which you probably never heard of, but it's like a for-profit school that'll teach you how to play guitar, gardening, programming, whatever you want. And I got hired there because a friend of mine got me in there when I was 20 or 19 years old. And I really love that. Um, and so uh, my, my colleague said, oh, you like teaching? Why don't you give me a resume and I'll you know, fill out an application? So I said, you're never going to hire me. I just have a master's degree. Um, and so I gave it to him, but I figured nothing would happen. And then literally two weeks before the quarter started in 2001, before many of you were born, um, I get this call from UCLA and they're frantic. They're like our lecturer bailed on us. We don't have anybody. Can you do it? I'm like, I got two weeks. Sure. Why not? So I uh, jumped in and uh, basically started um, from scratch. Uh, and that's, you know, that's been going on since 2001, um, January. Uh, and basically I only teach winter since then with, with some small exceptions. Um, I became an adjunct professor in I think 2008 or 2009. So uh, I don't know how many of you remember, but there was a financial crisis in 2008 um, and UCLA couldn't afford to pay me anymore. And so I began, I offered a volunteer and you cannot volunteer as a lecturer. The lecturer's union will not allow you to um, work for free. You have to be paid um, to, so, you, so that it doesn't undercut other uh, union members that are lecturers. And uh, as a, I was converted to a professor, an adjunct professor, uh, based on my history with the university and so on. 
um, you know, and contributions. And now I'm officially a faculty member, although a non-tenured faculty member. So now I teach as a volunteer. I don't collect a salary. Um, and, you know, but I'm basically a lecturer. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. And now I'll include one of my questions that, that I, I love to ask, ask professors. If, let's say you're walking in a park and you look on this bench and you see your 20-year-old self uh-huh. You have about two minutes, and I take your time here, uh, to give him whatever advice you want. What do you tell him? Oh. Don't let your fears limit what you try. And don't let, you know, especially the fear of failure. Um, be willing to go out and try different things that might seem scary or different um, uh, that you might fail at. Um, just go do them and don't worry about sunken cost. So like the fast, a bunch of time in a particular field, if you want to try something new and you have some passion for it or interest, just go do it. If you think you're going to fail at the interview, just try it. Like um, don't hold yourself back. Yeah. That would be what I tell myself. That's easy. That's very powerful advice. And for the UCLA undergraduates listening uh, what's something you, you might tell them that, that might help them make the most out of their UCLA experience? Uh, to make the most out of their UCLA experience? I just, um, just practice balance. Like, I wouldn't say just party 100% of the time. I wouldn't say just study 100% of the time. And I would say um, try to have as much of both as you can. Like this is the one time in your life where you're going to be able to just meet people and do crazy things and go on road trips and stay up until 3am with friends and have just really interesting philosophical discussions and, you know, just do all the crazy things that college students do. And a lot of people don't do that. And a lot of people do the opposite. They just do that a lot of that, but they don't actually do well in school and learn things that are useful. So I would say just practice balance and enjoy as much as you can. Uh, live with other, you know, live with other people, live in the dorms, try not, if you can afford to not, don't live at home, you know, really get to know other people, Cre create really authentic, vulnerable relationships with friends, like, cause you keep them for life. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, just open up and be with other people, um, get to know them and stuff. Uh, but yeah, just, just have a really maximize the value of your time there in all the dimensions you can join clubs, you know, everything you can do. Yeah. And start rock climbing, right? Uh, yeah. Well, if you can talk rock climbing, that's good too. Rock climbing is a lot, tons of fun. Yeah. Yeah. You still do a lot yeah. of climbing? I do. I'm going later today. Yeah. You're going there today? I'm going later today. Yeah. Very nice. Where are you going? Yeah. Uh, I'm going out to Malibu Creek. Yeah. We have some friends driving up from San Diego. Some other friends coming out. It'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. Got some newbies, got some like, people who are really good. It's going to be great. Nice. Beautiful I, day I, today. I saw a video of you dynoing to this like really sketchy handhold on the side of the cliff. <laughs> oh, you climb. I No, I dabble. I'm not very much of a climber. Okay. But I, I've definitely. Yeah, dino, yeah, dynoing is throwing for a hold, right? So you're, you're not just hold, reaching statically for it, but you're sort of losing control. And if you don't grab it, when you end up there, you fall off the rock. Yeah. Right, exactly. You can definitely you can find a video of Carrie doing that online somewhere. Okay, well, this has been one of my more casual interviews, I would say, or conversations. Mm. Um, yeah, you're a pretty chill guy, as I 
inferred from you know what people say about you online but it was great to meet you uh do you have any last words for the people of ucla uh, do you have any last words for the people of ucla i hope to see all of you um in winter when i'm back on campus in 2022 or maybe sooner um hit me up let's have a lunch on campus or something it'd be great to meet you know especially my former students from last year that all i did was see them on you know a screen so like part of the joy of teaching is just meeting people in person talking to them having lunch with them you know and uh i hate covid i hate just being alone at home this whole time so uh all, the only word i have for them is let's get some lunch or some coffee at, at kirkoff uh come when we can come back on campus so yeah but we can get yeah. together and we can swipe you into um B oh b plate i love the only problem with b plate is you just have to go 30 times to get enough food but it's great yeah no, right very good. small plates you end up with a stack i miss that place i'm gonna feast when i get there well oh, for right. sure um thanks again for being here uh it's great to meet you my pleasure I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Elder Llama podcast. This is what the show is all about. It's sitting down with the brilliant minds of the UCLA network and having conversations about a wide range of topics. The UCLA community is a hotspot of genius, and it's my intention to explore that genius and share it with you. If that sounds cool to you, consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening to this. And if you want to interact with me, ask questions, suggest ideas, Follow me on Instagram at Elder Lama.